Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Myth Busting Jewish Urban Legends and Misunderstood Texts with me, Uri Cohen. This is Web Yeshiva, and uh, we are about to start the sixth session out of 13 of this, of this course. Uh, I'm going to skip the quote at the beginning and, and, and come back to it. Let's go, let's start direct because we have a lot of material to do in this session. Hey, an urban legend. Eliyahu's cup at the Seder is called that because Eliyahu shows up and drinks from it. Uh, did they tell you this when you were a kid? Uh, there are a lot of aspects of the Seder that seem to be oriented towards kids, but uh, I'm not sure why adults seem to think, some adults uh, seem to think that uh, uh, all's fair in love and, and lying to children. Um, uh, and they don't stop to think about what happens when the children discover afterwards that they've been lied to. Uh, not only does Eliyahu not actually come uh, and, uh, and drink from, uh, from the cup at the Seder, but it's not, that, it's not like that's a traditional Jewish belief. And, you know, we're just telling the kids, you know, uh, what has been passed on for, uh, for thousands of years. No, no, as we're about to see, that, that was made up. Uh, the, as we'll see shortly, Eliyahu's cup is called that because of a different reason. And it's nice to uh, get your kids interested uh, in, uh, in staying up at the Seder. But you don't, you should not need to lie in order to, uh, in order to do that. So this is, uh, we are starting with uh, a Rabbi Zivotofsky. We've been doing uh, one of his articles, exactly one of his articles uh, each in each session. He has an awful lot of them. Misconception, according to ancient tradition, Eliyahu Hanavi makes a furtive appearance at every Pesach Seder. But in fact, there is no classical source stating that Eliyahu pays a visit to the Seder. As we'll see, there is an idea that Eliyahu comes to every Brit Milah. That's a traditional Jewish belief. This one's not. Most sources that mention Eliyahu at the Seder refer only to a big word, eschatological appearance, meaning at the end of days, Yimot HaMashiach, Eliyahu's arrival to announce the coming of Mashiach. That association, I think we've mentioned this before, that's mentioned in the, uh, um, in Sefer Malachi, Eliyahu will herald Mashiach. So there are, are all sorts of associations uh, between the Pesach Seder and hope for the Geula, the redemption in the future. So we hope that Eliyahu will bring Mashiach, and we hope that that will come soon, but that has nothing to do with the cup. So uh, Rabbi Zivotovsky points out the earliest source for having a cup uh, at all is in the writings of the Maharil's uh, son-in-law in the 15th century. He, he doesn't say to do it. He says he's seen people do this. Uh, pour a cup of, uh, an extra cup of wine. They call it Kosho Eliyahu. And he surmises his theory is, because it's not his idea, that, the, that it might be related to our hope that Eliyahu will come on Pesach night to herald Mashiach. I didn't bring it here, but note number two points out that uh, there are sources to, uh, to the effect that Mashiach will not come on, uh, on Yom Tov or Shabbat. But that's a, that's a separate issue. And Mishabura says this. It's called Kosho Eliyahu. To allude, it's a hint to the idea that just as God redeemed us from Egypt, Hashem will redeem us again. Okay, that doesn't explain why there's a cup, but that explains why there's something at the Seder that's associated with Eliyahu, because the Seder is about Geula in the past and also Geula uh, in the future. So what's the deal with the cup? So I summarized this. Basically, I did cutting and pasting from Rabbi, Rabbi Zivotovsky's article. I recommend going through the whole thing. 
Um, there are a bunch of explanations why Chazal, why the sages instituted four cups at the Seder. Um, the most famous one is the one that's, uh, that associates the four cups with the four Lashonot Gula, the four expressions that are in, uh, uh, that are all together. God promises uh, the Jews in Egypt, and there's a Midrash that these are uh, uh, four step stages of redemption. So it makes sense to have uh, four, there's a lot of fours at the Seder. It makes sense to have uh, uh, four cups. But there's a debate in the Gemara, which we're not going to get into now, and there's a debate among the Rishonim whether there should be a fifth cup. Why might there be an obligation to have a fifth cup? Because there are five expressions of Geula. It's not like somebody added that later. It's in the same, the same place in the Torah. God says, I will uh, redeem them from Egypt and I will bring them to the land of Israel. Okay, so the Jews got stuck in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, but that was not the original plan. And even though due to the fault of the the generation uh, who came out of Egypt, their entry into the land of Israel needed to be delayed, but that was still what happened. Okay, so it was Yeshua brought them into the land, but still, that that was the plan all along. Redemption is leave Egypt and go to Israel. So there's a debate, there has basically has been a debate all along, whether in light of the fifth uh, expression of Gula, should there be a fifth cup or not. The, the one who uh, associates them and suggests it is Rav Moshe Chagiz, uh, but that's really only a couple hundred years ago, early 18th century. Now we get to the, back to Eliyahu. It is possible, and this is going to be the Chatam Sofer, it's possible that as a compromise for the unresolved dispute, Regarding the obligation to drink a fifth cup, an additional cup is poured, but it is not drunk. We have it on the table. We have four cups, one at a time, on the table. Uh, we have five. Sorry, we have five cups, and we drink four of them as a compromise. We have the fifth cup, but but we don't actually drink it. Um, that might we don't know. That might be where the idea came from of having a fifth cup. Uh, uh, at the Seder, but not drinking it. So the Chatam Sofer suggests that that's what the Koshela Eliyahu is. It's the fifth the f- fifth cup for, ve- for, for Veveti, to have it on the table, but not to drink it. And the Vilna Gon, independent of the Chatam Sofer, says it's called Koshela Eliyahu because of what we said last week. Remember a long time ago, we talked about Teku? There is an idea in the Mishnah that Eliyahu, according to one opinion anyway, Eliyahu will resolve disputes in the future. I'm going to interrupt Rabbi Zivotovsky's article and show you the Vilna Gon right here. It's not in the writings of the Vilna Gon himself. It's quoted in a book of, uh, of Minhagim called Sefer Mat Amim, uh, Warsaw, uh, 1890. And it says, so this is an oral tradition from the Vilna Gon. Tom Minhag, a reason for the custom, we pour a fifth cup, the and we call it Eliyahu's cup, because there's a dispute uh, in the Gemara, whether you need the fifth cup at all. But the halacha was not resolved fully. When Eliyahu shows up with Mashiach, then the doubt will be resolved. This approach ties Eliyahu into the Seder, not because Eliyahu will come with Mashiach, 
but because when Eliyahu comes with Mashiach, we have a tradition that Eliyahu will resolve disputes. And here's a dispute right now at the Seder. Okay, therefore, Mosgina Kosmi Safek, we pour the cup uh, out of a doubt. But we don't drink it because we're not sure which opinion is correct. The Corino to And the reason we call it Kos Eliyahu's cup is when Eliyahu comes with Mashiach, all the doubts will be resolved. Like I said, that is a traditional Jewish idea. The and this one as well. So what, do, what did the Vilna Gon and the Chatam Sofer just, just do? They took two or three ideas that are from Chazal, and they used them to explain a custom from the last couple of hundred years of having a cup on the table and calling it Kos Shel Eliyahu. Does Eliyahu, is Eliyahu at the Seder? Short answer is no, we don't have any traditional sources that say that. In contrast, Pirkei the Rebbe Yezer, which is a relatively late midrash, but still a midrash, uh, has a story. Hashem yells at Eliyahu. Eliyahu accused the, the Jews of not being uh, committed to God enough. So God says, as, as kapara, as an atonement uh, for bad-mouthing the Jews, Eliyahu, you in the future will, will testify to every Brit Milah. You, you have to Remember, Eliyahu did not die, according to the shot. He went up in a, fire, in a chariot to it to heaven. So God tells Eliyahu he will have to go to every Brit and in order to tell the Jews, to tell God how great the Jews are that we continue doing uh, Brit Milah. This Midrash seems to be the source of the custom called Kisei Shel Eliyahu. Uh, I was at a Brit Milah very recently, and uh, they actually had the had an extra chair in order to have like an extra um, uh, kibud in order to honor two people, one bringing the kid to the chair, one from the chair. Uh, but of course, of course, you have the, the, the chair of Eliyahu. Why is there a chair of Eliyahu? To remind us that we have a tradition that somehow Eliyahu is present at every Brit Milah. That's mentioned in the tour and the Shulchan Aruch. Like that's a traditional, um, that's a custom that's based solidly on a midrash. But Eliyahu at the Seder, not so much. So Rabbi Zivotovsky suggests, where did the idea come from that Eliyahu comes to visit at the, at the Seder? Here's his theory, a confluence of factors. First, there is a direct link between Brit Milah and Pesach. And then he explains in, in the footnotes, with, and that's even mentioned you know, on, uh, in the Seder. There is a custom of opening the door uh, and around the same time as pouring the cup. And the door might very well be associated with looking forward to, uh, to Geula. So most likely, the combination of these practices led some to conclude that the cup is poured for Eliyahu. Um, even though you won't find it in, in, uh, in, in any source. Uh, so... Okay, so Rabbi Chagiz suggests that maybe the idea of the Kosei Shel Eliyahu is an extension of Kisei Shel Eliyahu, that just as we do have a traditional idea that Eliyahu is present at every Brit Milah, perhaps we can say that Eliyahu is also present at every Seder, and we remind ourselves of that to, uh, by having this cup. Maybe.
Maybe yes, maybe no. But either way, that's very different from saying the cup is for Eliyahu to drink. The cup is definitely not for Eliyahu to drink. So, uh, so that's, that's our classic, classic urban legend uh, with which we, uh, we started. Moving on to the next topic. Here's an unlikely story. Most of the, to- the, uh, the ones that we do in this class are more associated with the Orthodox community. This one's associated more with the uh, liberal, meaning non-Orthodox, Jewish community in the United States. Uh, you might have heard this, uh, depending on how much time you've spent with non-Orthodox American Jews. There's an orange on the Seder plate because a man once yelled that a woman belongs on the Bema like an orange belongs on a Seder plate. It's okay if you've never heard of this. But it has become a thing. It has become a, a common custom. I don't think anybody's done any surveys, but it has uh, been uh, been spreading or whatever has been continued for the last 40 years or so uh, among uh, non-Orthodox Jews in, in the United States. That, that there are customs that non-Orthodox Jews have started is not really so surprising. What's surprising here is that, as we will see, the custom, uh, at least originally, and maybe in some places is still, is to put the orange on the Seder plate and give an explanation for it, which is completely false. Even according to the people who created, or rather, especially according to the people who created the custom, that the people doing the custom are making up an explanation for it that is, um, that is false. And uh, before we even look at it, uh, for, I associate this weird... Uh, new custom, fake explanation. I associated with this quote from George Harrison um, uh, for our uh, younger uh, attendees. Uh, George Harrison was one of the Beatles, a, uh, a very popular group of, uh, of uh, music in the, uh, in the late 1960s. So in the 1980s, uh, there was a biography in, of the Beatles, whatever, history of the Beatles, uh, an acclaimed one, meaning it was considered like very serious was called shout by philip norman so in january 1988 george george harrison who has since passed away um was asked by an interviewer for q that's a british uh, music magazine uh and i was fortunate to be in a yeshiva with somebody who uh, uh who had brought it i forgot how i found this um no i, I was not in yeshiva with the brits then i don't know how i found this but i found this somehow the question was, Philip Norman suggests that you, George Harrison, were in the sitar because you were desperate to have some identity within the Beatles. Again, for the younger viewers, uh, that uh, John and Paul were considered to be the main, the main Beatles, whereas uh, Ringo and George, uh, not so much. Um, the, so that was the question. That was basically the, the author of the book had a theory that, that that's why uh, George were in the sitar. Uh, I should just add, I'm not trying to put down the, uh, the uh, young people. Um, uh, to be honest, uh, I was born in 1970, uh, approximately the same time that the Beatles broke up. So for me as well, the Beatles are history, uh, not, and I'm 50. So certainly anybody who's, uh, who's younger than that, you could appreciate the Beatles, but you didn't grow up with the Beatles the way that some other people who are uh, present here did. Anyway, so, so how did George Harrison respond to this? Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe Philip Norman wrote that book because he was desperate to have an identity. And then he reflects on, on being the subject of a, 
of a history book that gets some things wrong. George Harrison said, all these people think they know everything. They don't know anything. It makes me realize there's so much that they've written about the Beatles that is wrong. Most of the stuff I learned in school and in history is just, I mean, if they're wrong about us now and we haven't even died yet, just think what really happened to Christopher Columbus and all them people, meaning all them people throughout history. History must be totally twisted. I don't know if it must be totally twisted, but we should not be surprised if at least some of what we know or think we know about history turns out to be uh, incorrect. Uh, it's not surprising for all sorts of, uh, of reasons, but it's fascinating when, at least with the member the George Washington and the, uh, the cherry tree story, people who knew George Washington knew that that was not true. Um, but here, both with the story about uh, about uh, George Harrison, that a statement was made in the book that uh, he says that's not true, and like nobody asked me about it, uh, and so too that's going to be the same thing with the orange on the Seder plate. Makes you wonder about how many stories, how many things that we we think are true about even contemporary people that are not actually true. Okay, this is from an article from the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent from 2002. He says as follows, um, as legend would have it, the custom began in the early 1980s. Legend. Early 1980s, a noted Jewish feminist, Susanna Heschel, she has been a professor for many years uh, at uh, Dartmouth. Uh, she delivered a talk at a Florida synagogue on the emerging equality of women in Jewish life, as in the uh, Jewish feminist movement of the 1970s and 80s. After her speech, the story goes, an angry old man allegedly arose from the audience and shouted at her, a woman belongs on the bima like an orange belongs on a satyr plate. And that's, that's a very clever way of saying that the same way that everybody knows that an orange is not one of the traditional items we put on a satyr plate, so too a woman should not be a rabbi sitting on the bima, etc., etc. Um why did he say an orange? Presumably because this was in Florida, you know, the, the, uh, the source of, uh, of oranges for, uh, for the United States. Anyway, the story is retold annually to countless Seder participants around the country. A loose version of it appears in this particular Haggadah. It's even used to hawk Seder plates with a slot for the orange. The only problem is the event never took place. How do you know? Because Susanna Heschel goes around telling people this is not true, that as just quick summary. She did start the custom, but the story behind it is completely made up. What was horrifying to me, she says, was this was my idea and it was put in the mouth of a man. And that's precisely what has happened over the centuries to women's ideas. Okay, good line, good response. Uh, f uh, to, uh, but you know what? It didn't stop anybody. This article is from 2002. There are probably lots of people who still today have an orange on their Seder plate because uh, of the incorrect explanation. But what really happened? So this is where it gets interesting. And I have a lot of articles on this topic, but this is the best one that pulls it together because uh, Brian Mono, who wrote this article, uh, actually read the book uh, about the book that tells the backstory, which we'll get to shortly by Rebecca Albert. Alpert. Heschel said she introduced the custom at her, her family, Seder, in the early 80s after she came across a similar idea in a feminist Haggadah written by students at Oberlin College. The students were placing a crust of bread on the Seder plate. 
as a sign of solidarity with Jewish lesbians. And their notion was, there's as much room for homosexuality in Judaism as there is for a crust of bread on a Seder plate. In other words, they were protesting the exclusion of homosexuals, lesbians in particular, from Jewish life, uh, even non-Orthodox Jewish life. This was, remember, this was in the 1980s. Susanna Heschel uh, responded, she told the reporter, I was glad they had developed something about lesbians and gay men, but bread symbolized to me a rejection of Passover. Yes, actually, that's explicit in the Torah. Uh, it also implied that gays and lesbians are being transgressive, and I don't think they are. So for her own family Seder, she replaced the bread with an orange. Here's the explanation. I put an orange on the Seder plate at our family Seder and had everyone take a wedge and eat it as a measure of solidarity with people who are marginalized by the Jewish community. And this custom should recall gays and lesbians, uh, women, widows. My mother's a widow, she noted, daughter of Rabbi Heschel. And her favorite part of the ritual that she made up was that people have to spit out the seeds. So spitting out the seeds is like spitting out homophobia. Very clever. For some reason, people don't actually make this a part of the, uh, of the ritual. But let's go back. What's this bread thing from? Where did those Oberlin students get the idea from? So in Rebecca Alpert's introduction to her 1998 book called Like Bread on the Seder Plate, that's the title of the book, Jewish Lesbians and the Transformation of Tradition, she, Rebecca Alpert, the Temple University Religion Professor, she tried to answer this question. She traces it back to 1979. A Jewish women's group at the University of California, Berkeley, they're, they're, uh, at the Hillel. The group invited Hilda Langer, who's the representative of the local Chabad house, to speak about women in halacha. Okay, remember this was, like we said, 70s and 80s Jewish, Jewish feminism. Someone supposedly asked Langer, the Chabad Rebbitzin, to explain Judaism's attitude toward lesbians. And according to Alpert, quoting the people who were there in 79, she, the Chabad Rebbitzin, suggested it was a minor transgression like owning bread during Passover, something one shouldn't do, but for which there were few consequences. Now, I, I need to unpack this a little bit. Uh, now, eating chametz on Pesach is a big deal. It's high of karet. There's, except for eating on Yom Kippur and eating on um, Pesach, almost all the other things that are karate are incest. Like, that's really, really serious. That's why you'll notice that I changed this paragraph. The reporter, I mean, the, um, uh, the reporter here is quoting from Rebecca Alpert's book. Rebecca Alpert's book quotes the Chabad Rebbitzin as saying, a minor transgression like eating bread during Passover. No way. There's no way that a Chabad Rebbitzin or anybody who's Jewishly knowledgeable would have said that. But this was after Professor Albert interviewed people who tried to remember 20 years later what happened. What she almost certainly said was, it's not like eating chametz on Pesach, it's like owning chametz on Pesach, which, which is a violation of the Torah, but it's not karate. So presumably, the Rebbitzin, give her credit, she this was the 1970s. There wasn't a lot of uh, orthodox response at the time to homosexuality. Really, you know, the first, you know, there was literally one, I, I've researched this topic, there was literally one article uh, in the 1970s written by Rabbi uh, Norman Lamb. There was one article in the 1980s. 
written by Rabbi Barry Freundel. And then the, uh, as the topic developed, there was a lot more written starting in the 90s. So give the Rebbitson credit for thinking on her feet. She presumably said, well, male homosexuality, male homosexual sex, there's a, that's forbidden the Torah, it's high of mita. That's really serious. But lesbian sex, which is prohibited according to Jewish law. There's a machloket between the Rambam and Ramban. According to the Ramban, it's Asr Doraban. And according to the Rambam, it's Asr Doraita. But it's a lav shebichlalot according to the Rambam. Don't worry if this is too fast. This is just background. Point is, it's not of Mita. It's not of Karet. So when the presumably uh, uh, Jewish lesbians were trying to ask the Rebetzin, basically, is there any room for me in, in Jewish tradition? She was trying to say, yes, it's a transgression, but it's not as, as severe as lots of other transgressions. Give her credit for trying. And minus points to Professor Alpert for repeating it as if it was eating bread on Pesach. There's no way, even if the students... Uh, 20 years later, told Professor Alpert that there's no way that the Rebbitson said that. Anyway, months later, in the early 80s, when this group was planning a Passover, Passover Seder, the Rebbitson's comments resurfaced, and some uh, members decided to turn it into a protest. We lesbians are not accepted in Jewish communal life, just like bread is transgressive on Pesach. So let's put ourselves back into Jewish life like because we're like bread on the Seder plate. The problem is that it is still transgressive of uh, of Pesach. Like that's if if somebody wants to reject Judaism, that's what they do. You know, drop a piece of bread on the seder plate. But if you want to be to transform Judaism, if you want to be included in the community, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. So that's why what Professor Heschel did was a very reasonable response, saying, "No, no, no, not bread. An orange. An orange is." Nothing. Like, it's just a fruit. It doesn't have any positive or negative connotations with Pesach. And so that's why uh, So the, uh, the students at Oberlin looked at the bread and they said, oh, that's lesbians. And Professor Heschel wanted to turn this into a more positive symbol. So she said, no, no, no. Let's represent uh, uh, lesbians and excluded people by having an orange on the Seder plate. That was her idea. And people, her, presumably her friends... Uh, Professor Heschel's friends started uh, copying that, but pretty much right away, it turned into a symbol of women in Jewish communal life and how women should be brought back in, which is not what Professor Heschel said. And then somebody made up the story about a, 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 they They still told the story about Professor Heschel. Like that part of the story is true, but as if this is, it must have been that that she was giving a lecture about feminism and, and this guy uh, uh, called out, and so it was like a response, like in your face to this guy, but it really has nothing to do with, with gays and lesbians at all. So I feel bad for Professor Heschel because on the one hand, it started something that a lot of people continue. On the other hand, they completely changed the meaning of it. Good luck tracking down the source of the story, but it would seem to me that the story of the uh, the guy uh, heckling uh, uh, at the lecture resonated with people 
false story resonated much more than the true story about a whole complicated thing about lesbians and bread and transforming it. So the people who do have uh, orange on their Seder plate, the question is, what do they have in mind? It really basically depends on which Haggadah they have. So if they have a Haggadah that tells the fake story, that's what they believe. If they have a Haggadah that tells the, uh, the true story, then that's what, what they believe. Here's, here's uh, one of them. Here's one of the uh, uh, feminist Haggadahs with higher production values. It's called The Journey Continues, the Mayan Passover Haggadah, um, put out by the um, uh, Mayan, the Jewish Women's Project of the Jewish Community Center on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And what it says here uh, in their discussion of the Seder plate is... Um, Many feminists, and I'm just reading this because I, I think it's uh, fascinating the way that they presented this. This is a much better researched feminist Haggadah than many of them. Uh, many feminists also add an orange to their Seder plates. The origin of this practice is unclear. A common story about the orange is that it emerged as a response to a heckler at a speech by a Jewish feminist scholar in Florida. The heckler said that a woman belongs on the bima. Uh, as much as an orange belongs on a Seder plate. The speaker responded that, see, we're now making the story better, like an orange on a Seder plate, women's participation in Judaism represents transformation, not transgression. So that's one opinion. According to others, the orange dates back to a response to a different heckler who claimed that being a Jewish lesbian is like eating bread on Passover. We can't get away from the fake stories that it's about men heckling. In response to this, early lesbian feminist Haggadot proposed including a crust of bread on the Seder plate. The orange was then introduced as a less subversive symbol of Jewish lesbian inclusion. The end. What a nice story. So I just think it's fascinating that just like George Harrison discovered to his dismay, it doesn't matter if you're still alive. If the stories about you that people tell are better than the truth, those are the stories that they're going to repeat. Anyway, moving right along uh, to Street Torah. This is when we, address, we present something which is true, but it's not the only opinion. People think there's only one opinion, but really there's a bunch of others. So you've heard this before. It's Sara'at, uh, the skin disease that is translated leprosy, but it seems to be a spiritual one. Uh, it's mentioned in the Torah back in Parshio Tezrian Mitzorah, and it's Mentioned briefly in this week's parsha, uh, namely Balotcha, uh, when uh, Miriam gets tzarat after speaking Lashnahara about uh, about Moshe. Oh, I forgot to mention the reason that I the last two uh, urban legends, Eliyahu and the Orange, were about Pesach is because Pesach Sheni is addressed in parsha Balotcha as well. And now you know. Anyway, so tzarat is a punishment for Lashnahara. True or not true? True, that is an opinion. It's quoted in Rashi. Here it is right here in, part, in, uh, in the Medrash Tanchuman, source number one. Um, what's it based on? Well, Miriam gets Tzarat for speaking Lashnahara, so presumably at least one thing that Tzarat can be because of is Lashnahara. That's one interpretation. And also on the folk etymology level, don't worry, we're not doing this for folk etymology in this session. Mitzora, the person with Tzarat, can be understood as an abbreviation for Motsi Shem Ra. Uh, some of the letters are the same. Motsi Shem Ra, somebody who speaks Washington. Okay, that's fine. Nothing wrong with this medrash. But it turns out that there are no less than four 
longer midrashim in Chazal, all from Chazal, that list lots of reasons. We're not going to go through it here. Please feel free to go through it on your own. Um, the Gemara in Masechet Erechin, source number two, says there are seven sins for which uh, Tzarat is a punishment. All, all these midrashim are assuming that Tzarat is a, is a punishment. By the way, strange but true is that... Uh, Within this Gemara, what's its source for Rosh Hashanah? Not what you would think, and which appears in the other Midrashim, that because Miriam was, got Sarad when she said Rosh Hashanah, but rather there's a Pachuk in Tehillim that can be interpreted that way. So, in other words, whoever wrote uh, that Rav Shmuel Bar, Bar Nachmani quoting Rabbi Yochanan is trying to avoid blaming uh, Miriam. Anyway, seven sins mentioned here in, 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 uh, in source number, number two. Source number three, Vayikaraba, ten sins. Which overlap with the other the other ones, Bamid Baraba, and also appears in uh, two other versions in Medrash uh, Chuma, eleven sins, and then it throws in two more at the end. That's a lot, and at least some of these sins, by the way, uh, refer to Miriam as being punished with Sarat for something else, uh, not necessarily Lashon Hara, but. Uh, some other, depending on how you uh, how you read the uh, the story, it's uh, it's worth uh, it's worth going through it just very briefly uh, in this last medish on the bottom right of uh, of the page here for for lying. Miriam told a lie about Moshe, and for that she was punished with tzarat. What lie did Miriam tell? It's not explained here, but point is that for some reason nobody quotes these these Midrashim and this Gemara. Like, there's so much material just in these Agadot about the significance of Tzara'ah, and for some reason, people only quote the one for, uh, of, uh, of Tzara'ah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. Uh, just very briefly, Rav Anon Bazak from Yeshivat uh, um, Haaretzion uh, uh, just a footnote in an article that he wrote on, on Tazria says there could be no doubt that leprosy is a punishment. And he quotes Miriam, Gehazi, and uh, Uziyahu, all cases in Tanakh. But he, say, he says what's common in all three is that the, the person aspired to a higher spiritual level than the one that, that he or she had attained. And each was punished, Mida, Keneged, Mida, by ending up on a lower level than the one where he or she began. And this interpretation of Rav Bazak fits with one or more of the Midrashim. Um, but I just wanted to point out, so this would, this would be street Torah in the sense that for some reason, people think that there's one answer to this question, but in fact, there are over a dozen answers uh, to this question. Why, why limit the Torah when it's all there? And th- these are not obscure sources either, Medish Rava. Anyway, moving right along, now we get to a fun one. Uh, as you may be aware, uh, marijuana is more... Uh, uh, more common, more socially accepted uh, these days than it used to be. I just got this yesterday. Uh, this is uh, RBS Views, a uh, an advertising circular from my neighborhood, and uh, and you see the ad on the right on the front of of page one is a medical cannabis uh, available at this particular uh, pharmacy. Now, recreational. A marijuana use is not in the same category as medical marijuana, although the United States government, federal government, seems to think that they're the same thing. But as there is more social acceptance of recreational marijuana use, this urban legend becomes more popular. If you haven't heard it yet, you will. 
and that is in Parsha Kitisa, on the same in the same part of the Torah that speaks about the ketoret, the incense, uh, as part of the voda. It speaks about the shemen, uh, the shemen hamishcha, the anointing oil, and it gives a list of a few spices or herbs, whatever. Okay, and one of the things on this list is kenei bosem. Okay, what is kenei bosem? Short answer is we don't know, but Rabbi Arya Kaplan, and very impressive chumash, which I recommend. Uh, here's here's my copy. The uh, uh, need finding uh, Hebrew facing English. You can also get the the older edition is just just English. But Rabbi Kaplan, first of all, the, just the translation is great, flowing translation. And he brings in, it's not a full commentary, but a lot of material in the, source, in the footnotes, a lot of material from uh, scholarship, which when this was published in 1981, there wasn't a lot of orthodox biblical scholarship quoting non-orthodox biblical scholarship. Anyway, in this paragraph, he quotes a bunch of different opinions from, uh, from, from rabbis and scholars and historians as to what uh, what Kenei Bosem was. Is it, could it be this plant? Could it be that plant? And then he quotes, in passing, just like one sentence, on the basis of cognate pronunciation and Septuagint readings, remember, the Septuagint is not a traditional Jewish source. It's, it's a translation into Greek, uh, uh, not associated with the Torah. Anyway, on the basis of that, some identify Kenei Bosem with the English and Greek word cannabis, the hemp plant. And then he goes on to present another opinion. Wait, wait, who are we talking about? Who says this? It turns out there was one scholar who said this. Uh, she died in 1982, but she wrote this. She basically w- repeated this um, uh, over the years, uh, starting from the 1930s until she died in the 1980s. Uh, Sue Bennett, uh, not Jewish as far as I know. She was an anthropologist. Maybe she was, I don't know. Uh, she was an anthropologist from Warsaw who did her doctorate at Columbia University. Nothing wrong with anthropology, but you don't ask the anthropologists for linguistics. That's really not their field. So she wrote an article in a collection, in scholarly collection in the 1970s called Cannabis and Culture, in which she made this uh, uh, uh she presented this approach. This is as far as I know, she's the one who made it up. She says that, that Kinebosum is, is cannabis. The error occurred in the Septuagint where the terms Kane and Kinebosum are incorrectly translated as calamus, which is one of these plants. Of course, she doesn't explain why she thinks that's incorrect. Um, but and then she goes on to say that later Kane in the mix, is associated with, uh, could be associated with, uh, with hemp, although that, whether or not that's true has nothing to do with what it means in the Chumash. And here's where she sums up. In the course of time, the two words kana and bosem were fused into one. Kana bus. Mm. It bears an unmistakable similarity to the Scythian word cannabis. Is it too far-fetched to assume that the Semitic word can bosem and the Scythian word cannabis mean the same thing? Answer, yes, it is too far-fetched because, as we pointed out last week, quoting from that guy who works for the Oxford English Dictionary, there are a lot of words that seem sound like each other between different languages. And when you look into their history, you'll discover that the people who used one word never came in contact with the people who came, with the, uh, came up with the other word. It's just a coincidence. And since what's her source? 
for the, the Greek is from the Scythians. Okay, you look up the Scythians. They are the, another ancient people. They, there's no indication that they influenced biblical Hebrew at all. So is it too far-fetched? Yes, it is too far-fetched. I'm just surprised that Rabbi Kaplan threw it in as if, in the middle of his opinions, as if this is another opinion. Well, it isn't another opinion, but it's not from somebody who's either a biblical scholar or a, uh, an ancient Near Eastern scholar. So just to, to bring one thing to, uh, to refute it, uh, my, Michael, Dr. Michael Brown, who uh, has a PhD in Near Eastern languages and, and literature, uh, in his article, no, God did not prescribe the use of cannabis in the Bible. Uh, he quotes this, uh, this professor. And so what's his refutation? So, first of all, kanebosim is two different words in Hebrew, kane and bosim. We find them used separately, okay? Not a single scholarly biblical Hebrew lexicon in the world connects these words with cannabis. I can say that emphatically, he writes, because I own them all. The alleged connection is not there. To put it bluntly, there's no more connection between the Hebrew kanebosim and the Greek cannabis than there is between the, the word Moses But that doesn't mean that they are connected. In fact, just because you want there to be a connection, that's not actually enough. Or as Dr. Bennett put it, is it far-fetched? Yes, it, it is far-fetched. Uh, full disclosure, I don't usually quote Dr. Uh, Michael Brown because he is a minister and a missionary. Um, but in this article, he's not writing as a Christian. He's writing as somebody who knows Near Eastern languages and for some reason, I couldn't find a lot of Near Eastern language experts writing on this topic. For some reason, they don't seem to take it seriously enough. But that's good enough. Moving right along. Remember last week, we did an article from uh, Dr. Dara Horn about uh, the, Ellis I the myth of Ellis Island. In that same article, she presents two other tales of origin of Jewish communities, uh, one from Poland which we're not going to address, and one from Spain. So the, the, uh, the urban legend is Jewish life shifted from Babylonia I mean, during the time of the Goonim to Spain during the time of the Rishonim because of the four captive rabbis. So the Arba Shvuyim, as they say in, in Hebrew, so she ad admits, uh, so Dr. Horn is a professor of Judaic studies, uh, as well as a novelist. This story is not, strictly speaking, a folk legend because it can be traced to a single written source. That's Avram ibn Daud, uh, known as the, the Ravid Haravad ha Harishon, the first Ravid, the one who argues with the Rambam. That's the third Ravid. Or is it the second? Anyway, there are three Ravids. This is the first one. He is, did not write a Torah, a, a halacha commentary. He wrote a history book. And he lived during uh, the Golden Age of Spain, in uh, Muslim Spain. So he wrote a book called Tefer Kabbalah, the book of received tradition, um, in which he, uh, he presents history. Keep in mind, this is not history as currently understood like an academic uh, perspective, but rather history in the sense of stories. What's the point of Sefer Kabbalah? To show that the Mesorah tradition went from the time of Moshe all the way to nowadays in the uh, in the 1100s in uh, in Spain, he makes a connection. Basically, he takes the idea that's mentioned at the beginning of Perkei Avot, and the Rambam would later do as well, which is to connect the tradition all the way to him. 
So, so uh, Ibn Dawood connected it to him and his community. And he tells a story. There are four famous rabbinic scholars who were traveling by ship. They were captured by pirates. Oh, that always makes the story interesting. Pirates. Uh, the rabbis wound up captives and they were sold into slavery into different cities around the Mediterranean. And in each of the four cases, rabbis were bought and redeemed, redeeming captives by the, the Jews of those communities. In each case, those rabbis became the leaders of their new Jewish communities. And then he focuses on one rabbi in particular, namely uh, Rabbi, rabbi Moshe. Uh, rabbi Moshe became the leader of Cordoba, which was Ibn Dawood's own, own uh, community. And he tells stories about uh, on the boat, uh, uh, Rabbi Moshe's wife uh, uh, thought that she was going to be raped. So therefore she jumped into, into the water and drowned herself in order to avoid uh, being raped. Uh, and eventually they, uh, Rabbi Moshe and his son got were uh, arrived to the place, ended up being Cordoba. They were redeemed by the, the Jewish communities there, community there, and he became their leader. So, in a 1962 article on this myth, the historian Gerson Cohen, who became the, the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, sets out in detail the many points at which the story contradicts historical evidence. First and most obvious is the dating. Ibn Dawood claims that it took place in the year 990, but he mentions the uh, Muslim leader, Abd al-Rahman, but he died 30 years earlier. So something's already like, wait a minute, how can, how can he be in the story if he was dead? And another fact was disproved after Salman Shechter discovered the Cairo Geniza, um, and that is one of the other rabbis, is described in a document that was not known at the time of Ibn Daud, but it was only dug up uh, several hundred years later as he went to that community. Yes, he... Rabbi Yehoshia was the rabbi in Karawan, but he went there of his own free will. Meaning the story, the story is, is, uh, is made up. If you're interested in reading the 77-page article by Garrison Cohen, I refer you to his academia page. Uh, Ayers put up his, uh, his articles uh, for anybody to, uh, to read. Uh, Dr. Horn goes on to point out that still you, uh, you can see how it's not just a made-up story. It has parallels with the midrashim of Jews uh, being willing to die rather than be uh, be raped uh, during the time of the uh, the Horban, as parallel to uh, Hillel um, when when uh, he went from obscurity to becoming the the leader, the the Nasi, uh, and and but in general, as uh, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is unambiguous: the transference of rabbinic authority from Babylonia to Spain. So, given that the author of the story was not living at a time in which what we call historical accuracy was considered a value, it's not surprising that he put together some, some truth and some story and in order to, to connect his own community, Cordoba, to, uh, to Jewish tradition. Anyway, um, so that's the myth of the uh, four captives. Moving right along. A misunderstood text, we're doing a little bit of a, uh, 
a broader issue today. Instead of a particular text, a whole bunch of texts that is sooner or later, you're going to get into a debate with somebody who says to you, yes, but this particular mitzvah that we're arguing about must be l'chadchila and must be what the Torah wants because it's a mitzvah in the Torah. It's one of the Tarek mitzvot. So how can you tell me that, I don't know, slavery is non-ideal the Torah assumes that, that slavery is that's part of the system. How can you tell me that polygamy, uh, marrying multiple wives, how can you say that that's not ideal? It's in the Torah. Or to a more practical example, there's this bird that has its nest outside my, uh, my window. Uh, I want to send away the mother bird in order to do the mitzvah. Well, yes, there is an opinion that, that says that you do the mitzvah that way. But there's another opinion that says... Actually, no. Look at the way it's formulated. I didn't even bring the uh, the psukim here. It's a parsha kitetsi. It says, when you find a mother bird and you want the young, then before you take the young, send away the mother bird. But to send away the mother bird when you don't even want the young, how cruel is that? The whole point of the mitzvah is don't be cruel. Like it totally misses the point. Anyway, so as pointed out by Rabbi Benjamin Blech, who was. Uh, for many years, the rabbi uh, in uh, in Oceanside, uh, there are a bunch of mitzvot in the Torah that are not lechadchila. They're bidiavid. If you're if you're in the situation, how do you know which are these mitzvot? There's not 100, percent but a lot of the time you could tell if the law is prefaced by the Hebrew word ki, which in biblical Hebrew I know it means four different things, but sometimes it means when, when you find a mother bird, or when a man has more than one wife, or I'm now quoting from Rav, uh, Rav Amiel, fascinating uh, rabbi who was a rabbi in Poland who was associated with Mizrahi. He made Aliyah in 1936, and for the last 10 years of his life, he was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He wrote a lot of stuff in Hebrew, some of which has been translated into English, and some of which we can even call modern Orthodox, like this book, Ethics and Legality in Jewish Law. So he has a whole section about slavery, and he suggests, he doesn't mention the word key, but what, what he says overlaps a lot with what uh, Rabbi Blech uh, says. Rabbi Blech, uh, in, in the, the book uh, that, that's quoted there in source number one, say, he gives the examples of um, polygamy, divorce, monarchy, and, uh, and slavery. I mean, divorce, divorce is one of the target mitzvot. So that's something that we should do? No, it's not something we should do. If a marriage fails, then there's a mitzvah to to separate with a get. But it's not, just because it's in the Torah, just because it's a mitzvah, does not mean it's something you should want to do. It's just something that in this situation, here's what you should do. So here's what Rav Amiel uh, says. I recommend going through this on your own. For some reason, we're almost out of time. Yifat Toar, the uh, uh, captive woman, very, very non-ideal situation. Rav Cook, uh, I think, Think I, he might have written this. Be, I think he wrote this before Rav Amiel, so maybe Rav Amiel is referring to him. It says shchita. In other words, shchita is a mitzvah, but is it ideal or not to eat meat? Which is a much much larger uh, issue. The way it's formulated in the Torah is when you desire to eat meat, not that you should eat meat. Are you allowed to eat meat? Yes, you are allowed to eat meat according to the Torah. But can you tell from the Torah if it's ideal or not? No, you can't. And at least according to Rav Cook, the way the Torah formulates it indicates that it's not ideal. Rav Cook was not a vegetarian. I don't know if we'll end up doing this. This was a, this is a separate urban legend. People think that because Rav Cook praised vegetarianism, he must have been a vegetarian. No, Rav Cook praised vegetarianism in the future. Separate point. Anyway, a king 
A king is one of them, appointing a king is one of the mitzvot in the Torah. But there's a debate in the Gemara. Is it better to have a king or worse to have a king? And the opinion that says it's worse points out, it says, not only does it start key, when you come into the land, but then it says when you come into the land and you say I want a king like all the other nations. Who are all the other nations? The pagans. People where the king was, was a despot. A king was an immoral leader. So a bunch of commentaries including one of the opinions in the Gemara, they say that this is a very bedieved mitzvah. If you want to be like the other nations, fine, appoint a king, but you have to do it according to these rules. So uh, Rav, Rav Amiel gives us as an example of a B'dievet mitzvah. Oh, he points out also use the word rock. Only. Only is a, is a limitation. Another couple of examples, then we'll wrap up this, uh, this topic. Ben Sora Umore, according to one opinion in the Gemara, it never even existed. So what is the point? Not only is it B'dievet, it's something in practice we shouldn't do at all. Just because it's a mitzvah in the Torah does not mean something that we should aspire to. And then Rav Amiel then talks about the uh, owning slaves. I only brought a couple of paragraphs here, but uh, he talks about uh, the Jewish slaves and non-Jewish slaves, and he goes on at length about that. Um, and if you're interested in this topic of B'dievet mitzvot, mitzvot that are better not to do, I recommend also, I put it at the end here, an article by the late uh, Rav Dr. Nachum Rabinovich, long article uh, called The Way of Torah, in which he focuses on uh, polygamy, slavery, and war as, uh, as things which are mitzvot in the Torah, but, but that are uh, B'dievet. So don't let anybody try to tell you that if it says it in the Torah, it must be something we should aspire to. No, whether it's something we should aspire to or not depends on context, depends on Torah Shabal Peh, and it, you, can't, you can't just generalize from some mitzvot to all mitzvot. And now our last topic, stranger than fiction. Another connection to this week's parsha, which mentions the man, or manna, as they say in, uh, in English. Uh, rabbis have discussed what bracha the Jews would have said on the man in the desert. Now, this, this seems pretty strange because we associate birchot hanehanin, brachot on food, with rabbinic rules. So it's totally anachronistic to talk about uh, what bracha the Jews would have said in the desert. It turns out it's not so anachronistic uh, according to the Gemara, because even though the Gemara does not address this topic, the Gemara does say, in source number one, that Moshe instituted Birkat Hamazon, the obligation to thank God for, for our food afterwards, at least the first bracha. When did he do that? Bishashi Arad Lahem Man. When the man landed, and the man is described as Lechem in the Torah, it's described in, as a few different types of food, which is really a separate topic. I've taught this as a separate topic. But just for our purposes, it's described as, as bread. So Birkat Hamazon started on on the on the man, and the Gemara goes on to say, All I would know from this tradition is that there's an obligation to bless God after you finish eating the bread. How do you know that there's also a an obligation to bless God for the food before you eat it? And the Gemara answers, it's a kavachomer. If you need to uh, bless and praise God when you're full, when you're satisfied, then how much more so should you praise God and bless God for the food when you're hungry? So this is the Kaval Homer in the Gemara itself, which speaks about the origin of Berkhan Amazon. So that doesn't mean that 
there is a, a biblical obligation to say bracha rishona. There isn't a biblical obligation. But what the rabbis way to formulate it as a rabbinic obligation is a simple hakarata tov, a simple thank you, God, bless you, God, for giving us this food. In which case, since according to this Gemara, it makes sense to say that the Jews in the desert said a bracha before they ate the man, what bracha would they have said? Chazah did not answer this question, but there are a bunch of answers presented in Rishonim and Achronim with a practical ramification in the present and a theoretical ramification for the future. I have a whole shear on this. I'm just summarizing it now. And Ravad Yosef in Yechav Da'at pulls together a bunch of these opinions. Let's quickly go through them. If you want to see them in, uh, in English, um, uh, Sharona Halakman from Yerushalayim just uh, wrote in her weekly blog at the Times of Israel. She wrote up an adaptation of this tshuva of uh, Ravad Yosef. Um, Rabbi Yudah Chassid says, Hanotein lechem min hashamayim. A variation which is from the Ramah Mifano. Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. Uh, that's very clever, right? Normally, we, what do we say before we eat bread? Hamotzi lechem min aretz. Because the bread comes from the ground. Ah, but the man didn't come from the ground. It landed on the ground, but it came from heaven. So it makes sense to say, thank you, God, for giving us food from heaven. Okay, fair enough. But there was this Kabbalist, I never heard of him, quoted by Ravai Yosef, who says, no, no, the Jews did not make any bracha on, on the man because there's this tradition that it was spiritual food and it, it became absorbed into their, their bodies, like not even like through the usual... Uh, digestive system. It, w- it was magic. Okay, as I don't need to tell you, there are a lot of midrashim that speak about the man being being somewhat uh, magical. We haven't even gotten up to the opinion that says that the man tastes like anything you want it to, which is not in pshat, and it's one, but it is one opinion in the uh, in Chazal. Uh, Ravadia quotes this from from the Zohar that whatever taste you wanted the man to taste like, it would taste like it, and then you would bless Hashem, presumably with. The, the appropriate bracha on that on that food. So if you wanted to taste like ice cream, so presumably you'd say, "Thanks God for giving us this ice cream," and then you would uh, you would eat it. Um, others say, "No, one of the places that the man is described in the Torah is called Sapichit Bidvash, which is a wafer and honey." Well, what bracha do you make on a wafer? So that's presumably what they made. And in other words, because each each description of the man contradicts all the other descriptions. The only question is, which one do you compare it to? So, one of the other rabbis, Rav Chaim Falaji, major Sephardi Achron, said, points to Pasuk in this week's parsha that the man tasted like uh, it was dipped in, uh, in, in, uh, in oil. In other words, bread. It's bread, but bread baked with oil. Oh, so like pizza. Pat So, what's the bracha on that? Well, it's barim and me name is if you only have a little bit, but it's hamotzi if you are koveas uda, if you um, if you actually make a meal based on it. So it sounds weird, but there is basis for uh, for this as well. And there's there's a lot more to discuss because the gemara. There's a debate in the gemara. Did the man taste like when it? Working with the assumption that it didn't taste like whatever you wanted, but it tasted like the, the several vegetables that are described when the Jews are complaining. Ah, you know, we used to have all these great vegetables, but now all we have is the man. So there's an opinion that says that the man didn't taste like, like these vegetables. Or maybe the man tasted like them, but without the mamash. Like it tasted like artificial, like they mentioned cucumbers. So maybe the man tasted like artificial cucumber flavor and not like actual cucumbers. I don't know. But remember when we talked about the golem? 
and a weird debate about the golem actually had could have ramifications in the future about uh, uh, artificial uh, intelligence and androids. So right now, it has a ramification for hydroponics. This chuva of Ravavadya in source number two is the same chuva as source number three. He wasn't asked about the man. He was asked about what bracha do I make on fruits and vegetables that grew hydroponically? Can I really say uh, that, let's say, Bereprihah um, Adama uh, on, on a vegetable? It didn't grow from the ground. So Ravavadya suggests that possibly in light of some of the opinions about the man, that we should say shahakol if it grew from, uh, from water. Just like he compares it to the Gemara that we skipped, but that says that, that mushrooms, uh, mushrooms and truffles get, uh, get shahakol because even though they grow on the ground, they don't grow from the ground. In contrast, Rav Shmohalevi Vosner argues with, with, with Ravavadya and he says, no, no, um, hydroponics is not comparable to, to mushrooms because their mushrooms are always, all mushrooms grow from the air. Um, but here, let's say for sake of argument, tomatoes, no, better example, carrots. Carrots in general grow from the ground. These particular carrots grew from the water, but so what? As long as most carrots grow from the ground, then when you, whenever you eat a carrot, you say, even if this particular carrot did not grow from the ground, with the ramification that maybe in the future, maybe there will be a time in which most carrots don't grow from the ground. Most carrots grow from the water or whatever, uh, um, whatever other uh, thing they're going to grow in. And this was debated in the 1990s in a news group called Trek Kochavim about Jews and Star Trek. And in the context of that discussion, this group is no longer on the internet. I was... Uh, lucky enough to have copied the exact addresses at the time, so you can find them, find these these uh, discussions and a lot more on this topic from the uh, Internet Archive. So just just bringing two opinions, and with this we'll wrap it up. One opinion says, because they're talking about the issue that we mentioned previously about what if you um, what if you make something that tastes like pork, but it's not from a pig. If it's not from a pig, well then it's kosher. Right, it's only it's only not kosher if it comes from a pig. So the replicator, which is in uh, some of the Star Trek uh, series, I think it's I think it's all after the first one, right? Um, that the this is a machine that produces food from this generic stock that tastes like whatever you want. P.S. Not a hundred percent. So. So this guy Akiva Miller argued, even if replicated pork is still pork and non-kosher, which you could argue about, a replicated fruit would still get the generic blessing of shahakal because this fruit did not come from a tree. And what's his source? He's quoting Ravavadi Yosef that we just saw, ruling that the blessing on hydroponic fruit and vegetables is shahakal. So you see what he's doing here? He's projecting, imagining a psak for the future from a psak written for the present based on a discussion about man uh, in the past. And that's the way the Torah uh, sometimes works. Uh, in contrast, somebody else uh, suggested, because the importance, in other words, what are you going to do if you live on a starship where you're not anywhere near the ground? You're, you're not 
you didn't come from there. You know, you, you weren't born there. You're never going to come back to earth at all. So the question is, how can you, how can you say at all? So forget about uh, making a motzi and, and, and Shabbat and, and Yom Tov. How about fulfilling the mitzvah of matzah, which has to be done with unleavened bread. So like what? So all the mitzvah are going to disappear in the future? No, no, it must be, in my humble opinion, he says. On the enterprise, one will make the same blessing for replicated bre- bread as for real bread. We will bless Shabbat and replicated wine, even though it's not actually from the fruit of a vine. And it will be forbidden to eat replicated non-kosher food, meaning he's going to argue that rabbis in the future, when living in a situation in which everything is artificial, will simply take classic halacha and superimpose it on on the new reality. Obviously, that's not the halacha now, but that's not our situation now. So, just going to uh, to wrap it up. Uh, this I like the the idea of something a stranger than fiction uh, topic, which actually has possibly halachic ramifications for the present and maybe even for for the future. Uh, our time is up. Uh, thanks everybody for for joining me. I'm going to end the recording and then I will go through the chat. Uh, thanks for uh, for joining me and see you next week.